Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about material, the making instinct and a craftful life. Thank you to all returning listeners and any new ones, including anybody who found the podcast through the musings of podcasters like Jenny of Handmaiden Woolen, Jacqueline of Brooklyn Knit Folk and Rebecca of Creative Naturally. And of course, welcome to anybody who's just wandered into this corner of the interweb. You're all most welcome, and I hope you enjoy what you find here. I am Meg, and I am a curious maker who podcasts from London in the UK. First of all, apologies that this podcast is a couple of days late. I have been dogged with an ear infection, which means I've struggled to hear myself speak, and I didn't really want to record in that stage. Also, practically, where can you find me? Well, I am Mrs. M. Curiosity Cabinet on Instagram, and that is with underscore between each word, and Meg, aka Mrs. M. on Ravelry, and that is with a hyphen between each word. I'll put all those details in the show notes, which you can find on my blog at www.mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. Secondly, thank you to everybody who has contacted me, sharing your experiences and thoughts on topics I have raised. I feel very strongly that these insights should be available to all so we can build a shared pool of know-how about materials and making. A Ravelry group seems like the obvious way forward, as this forum lends itself well to sharing and discussing. For non-knitters, Ravelry is an online space that incorporates a pattern and yarn catalogue, a project database and a social network forum. Like most social networks, it's free to use, but it has much more functionality than, say, Facebook. However, I am aware that Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet is not just a podcast aimed at fibre folk, and the last thing I want to do is exclude anybody by going down the Ravelry route. If there is interest, I am happy to create a private group on Facebook as well as Ravelry, but I will be honest, I would not be very active there as it's not my preferred medium and I only really use it for research projects. Please let me know if you have strong preferences one way or another, and I will try and set up a forum page somewhere based on popular feedback. I would also like to mention that I shall be at the Leeds Wool Festival on the 3rd of June. This is a small festival held at Armley Mills in Leeds, which is an old industrial museum. I am mostly going for the social aspect and so that I can have a nose around the museum. I know that quite a few knitters I met in Edinburgh will be there, so if you should see me, please do stop and say hello and we can have a chat. So what do I have in store in today's episode? There will be a few lessons from the sewing room, some thoughts on comfort knits and comfort knitting, and a little foray into another type of fibre craft. But first, I'd like to give you a short update on my all-natural sock experiment. So pour yourself a cup of tea or a glass of wine and pick up your favourite project and settle in. to thank everybody who contacted me about my sock experiment. Some of you shared your experiences with nylon free yarn for socks, both good and bad. I also received some suggestions of yarns that perform well for socks, from high twist 100% BFL to mohair blends. Two yarns in particular were mentioned on a number of occasions. Blacker's mohair blend, i.e. the one that I was using uh, last time, The other is the Cuthbert Sock Yarn from Whistlebear Farm, and this is a Mohair and Wensleydale blend. So Mohair really does seem to prop up as a reliable alternative to nylon. 
I also loved that a few listeners took two of the ideas that I discussed last episode, all natural socks and the craft of use, and talked about repairing socks. They didn't just mean darning, and I don't say that to diminish darning in any sense. They were also thinking out loud about re-knitting toes that had worn through, or picking up stitches to re-knit a heel, and how those types of repair might impact on the comfort of a sock. As we had a very chilly April, I've been wearing my finished mohair blend socks, as well as a control pair. I should actually qualify that. You had to prise the mohair blend socks off me when they were ready to be washed, and I was forcing myself to wear the control pair in the interest of the experiment. My mohair Manx socks are just so warm and cosy that they beat my control pair hands down when it comes to comfort. I know some people find this wool scratchy and a lot of people can't stand mohair, but I have to say I love this blend. I will readily admit that I have a very strong tolerance of textured wools, but I would also add that the mohair is nothing like the fluffy mohair of the 80s. There is only a very slight halo to the mohair in the blend, and I suspect if it weren't labelled as mohair you would probably not know. More interestingly, by alternating the experimental socks and the control pair, I realised two things. First, some texture on my skin really helps with a sense of being warm. I'm not sure if this is physics or psychology, but for somebody who always feels cold, texture seems to be a good thing. Secondly, not only does the superwash wool nylon blend lack the warming texture, I really don't like the polymer-coated feel of it. It reminds me of the smoothing gels that hairdressers try to apply to my hair if I'm not quick enough with my no-styling-product-please comment. Now I know that my experiment was focused on nylon rather than superwash, but my realisation will impact on how the experiment pans out going forward. As all of the nylon wool blends that I currently still own are superwash, I think I will limit the number of patterns I use going forward. The planum pattern which I talked about last time is my go-to sock pattern, so I think I will use that for all the vanilla socks I make as part of this experiment. This will allow me to measure different nylon-free yarns against one pair of control socks, which I will wear, but not with a great deal of pleasure. That said, there is definitely some merit in testing nylon-free wools on different sock patterns, as certain breeds and blends may or may not lend themselves to more dainty stitches. I wanted my second pair to be a lacy pattern for use in the summer, and it has taken me some attempts to find a pattern that works with the 100% pole dorset yarn I'm using at the moment. I'll talk more about this experimental pair once they are further progressed, but I suspect I will settle on three or four patterns for the experiment, and then knit maybe two or three experimental pairs of socks per control pair. This is a good reminder about experiments on the pros and cons of more sustainable garments. They should consider all factors that influence usage, from objective issues like durability to more personal ones like fit and comfort. After all, an item that I don't wear because I don't enjoy it is a waste of time, effort and resources, irrespective of what material it's made of. Next up, some lessons from the sewing room. Last episode I mentioned I was smarting about a rather disastrous wearable twirl. I had for some time been looking for a pattern for a comfortable yet presentable dress that could become a staple in my wardrobe. The kind of dress I could wear for everyday chores but that would also look fine when popping into a museum or meeting a friend for tea. 
Oh, and it had to be a pattern that would work in a 100% natural fabric. I thought the factory dress by Merchants and Mills might do the trick. This company is an independent pattern designer and haberdashery based in Rye, which is an old silted-up port town in the southeast of England. For those who know their sheep breeds, it's not far from Romney Marsh, home to the original Romney sheep. The dress is inspired by a 1930s factory smock and is designed for medium-weight cottons or linens. It has a boxy bodice with bust starts and a v-neck that opens into a fold-back collar. It also has short sleeves that are set in and are folded into a cuff at the end, and the dress has a very gentle A-line shape formed by a couple of soft pleats rather than darts. As I have had rather patchy success when it comes to making dresses so far, I knew I would have to make a muslin of the bodice. I'm generally fine with skirts, but the dimensions of my upper body don't seem to fit into any of the assumptions that most pattern companies make about proportions. Based on my experience to date, I knew I would have to make two modifications at least. One would be to lower the bust start, which is one of the ways to accommodate a more generous bosom, and the other was to add length to the bodice to allow for my long spine. There are some excellent tutorials online about how to move a bust start. This usually involves drawing a rectangle round the dart, about half an inch above and below the widest point of the dart, cutting this piece out, moving it down one to two inches, and then chewing up the line on the side seam. As I needed to lengthen the bodice anyway, I actually just cut the pattern piece horizontally just above the dart and inserted a one and a half inch strip between the two pieces and then trued up the side seam. I added the same amount to the back bodice pattern, inserted it at the same point measured up from the bodice of the hem. I suspect trained seamstresses are probably wincing at that approach, but I have found it does a trick for me. It provides enough extra fabric to accommodate both my boobs and my spine. I made a muslin with these modifications in some cotton lawn, and when I tried it on I was delighted that it not only fit, but it also suited me. So I pinned out the pattern on the fabric for my wearable toile, a plain mustard ochre coloured cotton. I made up the bodice including fitting my first ever collar and set in the sleeves. I then made up the skirt complete with pockets and pinned it to the bodice, arranging the pleats and stitching it all together. Before hemming the sleeves and skirt I tried it on to double check the fit and I realised it looked hideous. That's not strictly true. It looked okay from the neck to the navel but altogether it looked like a sack. The pleats provided no shaping and the pockets added billowing inches to my hips. I could have kicked myself. I should have made a muslin of the whole dress before cutting into my affordable but quality cotton. Actually, I should have been really honest with myself before buying the pattern rather than being seduced by the shape of the bodice. I most definitely have an hourglass figure and a very pronounced one at that. There is a sizable difference between my waist and hips. I still don't know what I was thinking of going for a pattern that ignored my narrowest point and focused on the widest. Actually, I probably do know the reasoning. It takes a lot of practice to get a good fit with woven fabrics. It involves the correct placement of darts at bust, back and or waist, and may also involve pinching out excess fabric to create the correct 3D shape. When done properly, it results in a smart but not necessarily relaxed fit. That was the case with my Francoise dress, a shapely shift dress pattern by Tilly and the Buttons. The success of my Francoise dress was not just due to the abundance of darts. I also started with a shape that fundamentally worked for my body shape. True, the dress on the model was far too short for me, but length is an easy thing to fix. 
More importantly, the ratio of bust waist and hips of the design were broadly right for my body type, whereas those with the factory dress most definitely weren't. So where did I go from there? For a casual yet presentable dress, I decided to stay close to what was tried and tested for me. As the Francoise dress and the Coco tunic top, both patterns by Tilly and the Buttons, worked for me, I decided to try the Coco dress. I had originally dismissed the dress as it was far too short for me, but then I realised I could lengthen it, much in the same way as I had done with the Francoise dress. I therefore bought two metres of organic cotton interlock fabric in classic black from the Organic Textile Company. As the pattern recommends a stable, heavy jersey, I thought this would be a safe choice for a wearable toile. Why black? Well, obviously black is a classic colour, especially for jersey, but more significantly, the Organic Textile Company only offers interlock in black and a natural shade. Interlock is a type of jersey which is actually composed of tiny rib stitches. The best way to think of it is in terms of the little V's and pearl bumps you see on knitted garments. When you look at interlock closely, you see little V's on both sides of the fabric. When you look at regular single jersey used in t-shirts, there are V's on the front and pearl bumps on the back, just as in stockings and stitch knitting. Before cutting into the fabric, I lengthened the pattern. I added about 4 inches to the dress, inserting half of it at the insertion line and the rest at the hem. As the dress has quite a pronounced A-line shape, I didn't continue the seam line down and out. Instead, I measured directly down from the point where the side seam and hem meet and treated that as the widest point. All I had to do then was true up the side seam. This meant the A-line skirt didn't end up looking like a tent on me. I'm generally happy with a finished dress. It looks pretty smart in a classic way, but is very comfortable, which was definitely the look I was after. It will definitely become a wardrobe staple, but next time I make it I will probably go down a size as I ended up using an inch seam allowance rather than 5 eighths of an inch. And what about the factory dress pattern? Well, as ghastly as the dress looked on me, the bodice looked broadly okay as long as I combine it with the right separate. I therefore have plans to lengthen it a little to make a casual top I can wear over a fitted A-line skirt. Also, as there is a seam down the centre of the top, I think I can use the pattern as a basis for a long shirt with side slits. So whilst it was frustrating to put all that time and effort into making a toile, it certainly wasn't wasted. As for the fabric used in the disastrous dress, well, I think I can plunder that for cushion covers as well as scraps for a quilt. earlier it was an unseasonably cold April. I really feel the cold. I always did but in recent years it has got worse and after six months of feeling cold my heart sunk at a frosty snub. Last month also felt particularly trying. There were no undue dramas. I think it was just the relentlessness of pain and fatigue, the heart sinking sense of another divisive election campaign and generally spending too much time in my own head. Let's just say I felt a bit fragile and I was in need of lots of tea and hugs. So I decided to pick up a sweater knit that had been on the back burner due to my sock knitting. It was a jumper that would never win any prizes in the fashion stakes. One that Mr M called my girl next door jumper. It was a Strocker design by Isolde Teague. A classic yoke with a fair detail that sits on the shoulders rather than round the shoulders. 
I'd also decided to bend my normal rule about knitting with local wool. I reached for Icelandic leather lobby that I had in my wool pantry, as I like to call it. This wool is a worsted weight, so as you can imagine, once I picked up the sweater again, the rounds of stocking stitch just appeared. Before long, I had finished the sleeves and was on to the fun bit, the ferrule yoke. That was only a 24-row pattern, so very soon I was snuggled up in a new woolly sweater. Once I put the sweater on, any qualms I had about using non-British yarn or even knitting myself another thick woolly sweater disappeared. It felt like an extra layer of insulation and instantly lifted my spirit. I don't mean that in the kind of shot of endorphins after shopping kind of way. Rather, it lightened the tension because I was no longer shivering. This comfort knit is such a cosy, comfortable, cocooning garment that it had an almost medicinal effect on me. My next cast-on fell into a similar medicinal category. I balled up the organic Uridale Shetland wool I had bought at the Edinburgh Yarn Festival and cast on the Talavera by Amanda Collins, also known as Owl Print Panda. Shetland is one of my all-time favourite wools, and just the feel of it between my fingers as I knitted warmed me. It helped ease the accumulated tightness in my shoulders, and the colour seemed to cast an almost medicinal spell too. Julie of the Woolen Flower really has worked magic by over a natural grey with madder. The resulting coppery maroon colour seems to exude warmth. It may have only been psychological, but I don't care. Turning this amazing wool into a lace, airy, yet warmth-giving top has really helped warm my body and soothe my mind. It has been real comfort knitting. In the first episode of this podcast, I mentioned how I often experience a tension between my environmental and sustainability values and my love of making not just in what I use, but in how many resources I use. Many in the environmental movement advocate consuming less and swapping stuff for experiences. While I don't disagree with this sentiment, I do think the mantra experiences, not stuff, can be a little simplistic. Even if I ignore the significant benefit of feeling warm in my Icelandic sweater, the repetitive act of turning a gorgeous natural material into stitches, rows and a garment can be just as life-enhancing as any other type of experience, like going for a hike or tackling a fellow sportsman on a rugby pitch or enjoying a gallery exhibition, getting lost in a good book, making music, building balsawood boats. Some experiences involve accessing shared commons, like a national park or a gallery or a public library. Other experiences may involve connecting deeply with a material, be it the grain of wood or the strings of an instrument. In many ways, as a knitter, I'm very lucky. I can enjoy a life-enhancing experience and a fabulous medium and in the process clothe myself. would like to share some thoughts on another type of fibre craft. It was London Craft Week at the start of May and there were talks, tours and workshops on all manner of crafts across London. From perfume making and calligraphy to dyeing, spoon carving and leather working, there was even a tour of a London forge that makes kitchen knives. I was lucky enough to bag myself a spot on a paper making workshop organised by the wonderful Institute of Making. 
This institute is part of University College London and is in essence a space equipped with all manner of tools so staff and students of the university can explore materials and processes in a hands-on way rather than just reading about them in the library or understanding making as a sequence of programme steps. As part of London Craft Week, the institute also organised some public events, including a papermaking workshop. If you are based in or near London, I would seriously encourage you to follow the Institute on Twitter or Instagram to hear about their upcoming workshops. Not least of all, as there is an annual festival of stuff which takes place every July. Ever since I was a child, I have loved paper. It started with the books my parents read to me as a toddler, and the paper dolls and dresses I would make. Then there were the lined notebooks we used at school when we learnt to write, the endless paperbacks I devoured as soon as I learnt to read, my first diary, newspapers, flimsy airmail paper that I used to communicate with pen pals around the world, dictionaries, the loose-leaf journals and bound volumes in the university library when I was an undergraduate, and now the quality paper I use in bookbinding. Paper is such a mundane material we barely give it a second thought. Where has it come from? How was it made? How did it develop? In many ways it is a humble technology, but one that has had a profound effect on the history of mankind. Just think of its role in administering great empires, from the early Chinese dynasties to the British Empire and the Soviet Union. Or its function in spreading religious and philosophical ideas, like the spread of Buddhism from its birthplace in India eastwards, or the spread of the ideas of the Age of Reason. Its impact on international trade in the form of bills of lading long before electronic clearing systems existed. It was also one of the tools for the democratisation of reading and writing, and is a very common tool used in spreading revolutionary ideas and protests throughout the centuries. While digital communication may be taking over, paper will not disappear anytime soon. Think of all the packaging around, both functional and aesthetic or all the people turning back to physical diaries and journals. The increasing popularity of hard copy books as the sale of e-books seems to have passed its peak. If you want to learn more about the history of this fibre-based material, I can definitely recommend the book The Paper Trail, An Unexpected History of a Revolutionary Invention by Alexander Munro. It was published by Penguin in 2014 and costs about £10. It's an absolutely fascinating read, full of curmudgeonly characters and envisionary inventors, as well as information about materials and processes used to make paper in centuries gone by. Anyway, the Institute had invited paper artist Mandy Brannan to lead the workshop, and I jumped at the chance of attending it. It was not my first attempt at paper making. During my life cycle analysis seminar on my master's course, we had to calculate the impacts of recycling paper versus making virgin paper and burning used paper for energy. I was a kind of student who didn't just take the data provided at face value. I wanted to understand the process involved in recycling paper. So I tried to make some. It was a very amateurish exercise in my bathroom sink using a temporary mould made from a picture frame, some milliner's straw and a baking rack and pulp made from printed journal articles. Mandy's workshop was of course very different. For one, she had proper equipment, but her technique also involved combining Japanese papermaking skills with recycled materials for colour pigments. I was especially eager to learn more about the Japanese style of papermaking as I know how well regarded Japanese paper is in bookbinding. 
Also, I knew it would involve working with actual plant fibre. Mandy's teaching style is very hands-on, so within minutes we were soaking dried kozo bast in water and tearing the fibre apart. Kozo is the Japanese mulberry bush, the same bush used for silkworms, and the bast is a fibre between the bark and the wood. As someone who spins, my instinct was to prise apart the individual fibres and preserve their length, much like drafting wool, but what I actually had to do was rip it horizontally into small shreds. Then we started pounding the wet mass with the wooden mallets, much like a meat hammer, or stones. The hand pounding continued until the fibres looked like a fine membrane when dropped into water. When we had enough fibre, we mixed it in washing up bowls filled with water and added a gloopy liquid made from the root of the tarora plant. This is a plant in the mallow family and the liquid changes the pace at which water drains from the pulp. Then Mandy taught us the art of pulling paper using a decal and mould. The mould looks like a picture frame with a mesh covering the opening and the decal is a second unmeshed frame that is held on the mould. Using a sweeping motion, the decal and mould go into the water vertically and scoop up some of the pulp. Then, while lifting it, we had to swish the mould gently sideways to ensure the pulp was evenly distributed. Once all the water had drained off, we practised transferring the sheet from the mould to a drying mat. In Japan, they use fine reed mats, but we just made do with non-fusible interfacing and a towel. We all enthusiastically pulled enough sheets to fill our mat and then started pressing the paper. Mandy taught us a wonderfully low-technology approach to paper making, including using ourselves and wooden boards as a press and rolling the damp paper onto a window pane to ensure it dries flat. The second half of the workshop involved adding colour by layering different materials. This meant more pulp making. Rather than beating, we ripped various materials into tubs of water. The most exotic material was abacate linter, which are thick sheets made from the fibre of a banana-like plant. But we also used coloured paper and pages from an old book. Each tub of moistened matter went into the blender to produce a pulp of different colour and thicknesses. After pouring the pulp into washing up bowls and adding the thickener, we made more sheets, starting with a layer of kozo and ending with a layer of abaca, or vice versa. The results were colourful art paper. Some of my sheets were quite subtle and looked like marbled paper or polished granite. Others reminded me more of slices of salami or mortadello. Mandy encouraged us to experiment and see what different materials could achieve. At the end of a slightly soggy morning, I had a rudimentary understanding of some of the techniques used to turn dried fibre into paper. I was also reminded that for many centuries, paper making was a laboriously slow task. Just like spinning, weaving, net making, salt making, blacksmithery, wood carving, book binding and the many other crafts that centuries of agriculture, industry, cross-border trade and learning relied on. On a more practical level, I was wondering what I might do with the skills I'd learnt that day. As I prefer simple paper to multicoloured sheets, I will probably not use all of the techniques learnt, but I would like to delve more into how I can use plants from my garden and local foraging trails to make paper. I love the mindset of viewing waste or spent material as a resource. For example, the daffodils and irises in my garden have almost died back. Soon all the goodness in the leaves will have leached back into the bulbs and I will be left with withered leaves. Perhaps I could turn them into paper for my grocery lists. 
They would be humble sheets for a mundane use, but it would squeeze more function out of the plants before they go back onto the compost heap. Then there are the many yucca trees in the front gardens of my neighbourhood. Victorians seemed to love this tree, with its hint of the Mediterranean, so it was a popular choice in front gardens of Victorian terraces. And from what I've read, yucca leaves make a rustic alternative to abaca. I'm not averse to knocking on my neighbours' doors and asking if I can collect their spent leaves. And if the experiment is successful, perhaps I could suggest paper making with yucca as an activity at our annual neighbourhood street party. One of the plants I secretly long to turn into paper is bindweed. I'm not sure if this is even possible, but the pernicious weed is encroaching from next door, and I would really love to wreak my revenge by turning its leaves into paper and the tentacle-like stems into string. On that constructive, if slightly violent note, I think I should call it a day. Thank you so much for listening, and till next time, I wish you lots of happy making time, and I hope you get to delight in your favourite material and maybe explore some new ones. Speak to you soon.